Today we're looking at the topic of uh, God's wisdom on pride and humility. And I want to acknowledge right from the start that I am a proud man and God is patiently teaching me humility. So like all the sermons that I give, I'm also preaching to myself. I have not arrived. And so if I'm honest with myself, I want to be honest with you as well. You have not arrived. You need, like me, to hear the wisdom of God's word. You, like me, need the conviction that can only come by the Holy Spirit working through God's word. And during the sermon, you, like me, will be tempted to think, aha, this particular truth applies so appropriately to my colleague. Now, can I plead with you, don't do that. Don't look at other people. Resolve right now, from the start, before we even start the sermon, resolve now that you want to hear God's word and you want it to be applied primarily to yourself. Resolve by God's uh, grace and His Spirit to do that. In other words, don't play Tai Chi with God's Word. You know, God's Word comes at you and then you go, ah, yes, to this person. Yes, to this person. No, no, no. Let it sink in to our own hearts. God, God and His Word needs to search me. God and His Word needs to expose our own proud and deceitful hearts. I need God's Word to do that surgery on my heart. Let's ask God to help us do that. Father, we pray that as we come to Your Word, as we come to this uh, most important topic, Father, You would uh, express Your grace and mercy to us by allowing our hearts to be soft to Your Word. And that you accompany the preaching of your word by the powerful working of your spirit to do that work that only you can do on each of our hearts. We pray that no one will leave here without encountering your word powerfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the last in our series on Proverbs. And we've been learning about wisdom and how wisdom is living in God's world with the knowledge of the way God runs this world. It's knowing and being in tune with the order that God has built into his world. And so, regarding pride and humility, God's wisdom on this, uh, very simply, is pride is bad, humility is good. Right, okay, so it's as simple as that. It's not surprising to any of us. But what may surprise us is that God's wisdom actually works. Not just in our Christian context, but surprise, surprise, it also works out there in the, the real world. Now, C.J. Mahaney, in his great book, Humility, uh, tells the story of how uh, the best-selling business book called Good to Great. How many of you here have read Good to Great by Jim Collins? Okay, so not many business leaders around us, but uh, Jim Collins and his team basically spent five years studying 11 corporations, uh, trying to understand how you go from being good 
too great. And so Jim Collins identified two specific character traits showed by these CEOs of these good to great companies. And the first, no surprise, is that these CEOs possess incredible professional will. They were driven, they were willing to endure anything to make their corporation a success. The second trait they had in common was, surprise, surprise, these corporate leaders were self-effacing. They were modest. They consistently pointed out the contributions of other people. And they didn't like drawing attention to themselves. When Collins interviewed people who worked for these CEOs, the, the common uh, lists of words used to describe them were quiet, humble, modest, gracious, self-effacing, and so forth. These words were used by their, by their subordinates to describe them. And so here is open acknowledgement of the order that God has built into this world. Humility works. My point is not to get you thinking, aha, how I, now I must get hold of that book. I need to turn my, my business from being just good to great. No, no. My point is to get us to see that God knows what He's talking about. That what we're going to be learning from God's Word about pride and humility are not just ideas that make for good discussion in a Christian context on a Sunday morning. It is the truth about ourselves. It is the truth about our world. It is the truth that it works and needs to be applied to our lives, to the deepest of our hearts. And so you see in your outline uh, three points. And the first one is the danger. And of course, the, the danger that we're looking at is the danger of pride. What is so dangerous about pride? Proverbs 15, 25 tells us, The Lord tears down the proud man's house, but he keeps the widow's boundaries intact. Proverbs 16, 5, up there. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Did you notice the strong language? In effect, God is saying, I hate pride. Now, rather than being unaffected by such language, you know, when we see the word hate, we are immune to it because we, we use it so often, you know, I hate Manchester United. Or, I hate bird droppings on the car. Or, I hate it when my socks are wet. No, no. When God says, I hate, it has nothing to do with his personal taste or comfort. God's hatred for pride arises out of his own holy character. And it seems that again and again in scripture, that such strong language for pride is consistently used. And the question we must ask is, what is it about pride that attracts such strong language from God? What's your understanding of pride? How would you define and uh, explain pride to someone else? Well, we would maybe say, uh, pride is seeking to be better than others. And so, we will go, aha, my car is bigger than yours. If you're proud. 
or some of us will go, ha ha, my associate pastor is more handsome than yours. Or pride is constantly being aware, constantly thinking of myself. And so in a situation, we'll go, how am I being treated here? Or what, what does this mean for my reputation? And all these questions consume us. That's pride. And we have seen such expressions of pride. We see it in others, we see it in ourselves. But that's not the essence of pride. For the essence of pride, we need to look at uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel. So first, Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 first. And these verses record the rebellion and fall of Satan. Hang on. So you look at Isaiah 14. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. So this records Satan's desire to to take the place of God, to, to share the status and position of God. Now when we turn to Ezekiel 28, we see that this desire to take the place of God is defined as pride. So Isaiah uh, Ezekiel 28, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says, In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas, but you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. Can you see why pride is so offensive to God. Because pride is actually contending with God. Pride is, is, is lifting up our hearts against Him and wanting self-glory. Pride is us as sinful human beings desiring to have the status and position of God. We are, we are desiring to have the same supremacy, the same glory that God has. Now, last year when I was in Australia, you know that I was part of the student uh, group there. And uh, the work there is that in June and in December, they have uh, staff meetings, staff conferences. And I had to travel to uh, Sydney for this. So in June, uh, I went to my first staff conference. And what they do during the staff conference is that they will put you together with um, similar aged staff workers. So I was in a group of uh, staff workers who were just starting out. Some were in the first year, some in the second year. And we would be in the same group, uh, praying together, um, getting to know each other, keeping each other accountable. And in the December staff conference, we would meet again. And so I met them for the first time in June. And then in the second semester, the International Student Ministry at UWA uh, did very well. You know, it, it, it grew, there were people being converted. And so when I arrived at the December staff conference, 
when we had our first meeting. To my shame, I recall going to that meeting and there was, there was a smugness. There was a pride in my heart that since the time we met in June, I alone, of all your ministries, my ministry alone has more than doubled. I'm sure none of you experienced that growth. My ministry compared to yours has experienced more people becoming Christians and, and it was with that pride that I went into that prayer meeting. If that, if that is not contending with God for supremacy and for glory, what is? That, my friends, is the very essence of pride. When you go, my car is bigger than yours. I earn more money than you. That is also contending for, for glory with God. Because who gave you that job? Who gave you the ability to perform in that job and make this amount of money? And when you go, aha, I'm cleverer than you. My grades are better than yours. Again, that's also contending with God for His glory. Because who gave you those brains? Who gave you the ability to work hard and to study hard and to remember those things? Pride at its very essence is contending for supremacy, contending with God for His glory. And so friends, if we understand this, then we must realize that it is not enough simply to confess to God, Oh God, in this situation, I have been proud. Please forgive me. No, no, I think it would help us realize it would lay that greater conviction on our hearts if we were to say and admit that, Lord, in this situation, I was actually contending with you for your glory. I was trying to take your place. Please forgive me. We need to remind ourselves consistently, constantly of what the essence of pride is. We need a constant reminder that being proud is ultimately seeking to glorify myself and not God. We are seeking to get for ourselves what only God and God alone deserves. Now God's wisdom tells us another truth about pride, what it leads to. So you see up there Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Or again, Proverbs 16.18, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, very clearly, God's wisdom in the Bible is telling us that the pathway of pride leads to only one destination, destruction. That if you take the bus of pride, it will bring you to only one stop, destruction. But we can look at it the other way as well. When we see that there's been a destruction in a relationship, for example, then we can know for sure that somewhere up the road, there was pride. When a ministry team cannot work together, uh, Christians fall out with each other. 
or when the church splits, we can be sure somewhere up the road was the ugliness of pride rearing its head. Now we must think, why? Why does pride lead to destruction? Well, I hope that uh, by understanding what the essence of pride is, we can see why it leads to destruction. Because pride is contending with God for His glory, for His supremacy. We, we are putting ourselves on a collision course with God. Of course we will lose. Of course, it's like a toy car going against a bus. We will lose big time. But there's also a more practical daily reason why pride leads to destruction. Proverbs 13.10 says, Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Or Proverbs 13.1, A wise son heeds his father's instructions, but a mocker does not listen to rebuke. And again, Proverbs 15.12 A mocker resents correction. He will not consult the wise. Now we've seen that in the book of uh, Proverbs, in the Bible study, that mocker is another word for the proud person. So it's quite clear uh, what these verses say. When pride rises up, it affects the person's hearing. The proud person just will not listen to others. Now, how this works in practice goes something like this. Let me try and describe to you. <clears throat> the proud person, when he wakes up in the morning, he fails to do something. No, it's not brush his teeth. He fails to remind himself that he is in desperate need for God's forgiveness. He is in desperate need for God's transforming grace. Instead, the proud person will give himself to the work of convincing himself that he is okay. He tells himself again and again that he is not the problem, that the problem is out there. The problem is with those people. If anything is wrong, yes, it's their problem, it's they who have done wrong. You see, the proud person suffers from this delusion. The, 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 the blindness, uh, suffering from this, this thinking that no one, no one has a more accurate picture of himself than himself. So the proud person thinks, my view of myself is the most correct. And so the only critique, the only feedback he will listen to is those that's posed by himself. And so when others come, with their feedback, with their loving correction, loving rebuke, when he's questioned, when he's confronted, his defense shields will rise up. And, and he'll be telling himself, these people don't know me. These people are not understanding me or seeing me correctly. That's why they're asking these questions. If they really saw me correctly or really understood me, they would not be questioning me this way. And so the proud person is unable. Unable to hear, unable to receive any correction, any feedback. And so what results is that problems, sinful patterns would be left unaddressed. 
And unless the grace of God intervenes, these problems, these patterns would, in time and in space, grow and worsen until they come to some tipping point. Friends, I hope we realize the danger of pride. It is dangerous because of what it is. Contending with God for supremacy. It is dangerous because of what it leads to. Destruction. And it leads to destruction because this person is on a collision course with God. And it leads to destruction because this person is unable to hear the loving feedback given by others. So what can we do in the face of such danger? What can we do when our hearts are so prone to pride? Well, we need to turn to our next point, which is about the promise. The promise of humility. Now, who can tell me where this verse is found? Okay. God helps those who help themselves. Okay, some people shaking their heads. Yes, that's right. Uh, this verse, even though it's often quoted uh, in Christian context, is not in the Bible. Rather, uh, we see instead something like Proverbs 3, 34. God here mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, this is the promise of humility. God is personally supportive of the humble. Now see, I support the arsenal. And I was pleased to uh, know of our win yesterday. Uh, big win that uh, we really needed. I support the arsenal. But the team, the team that God supports, the team that He is behind, the team that He is rooting for, is the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Now, there's another related promise in Proverbs I want to draw your attention to, and that's Proverbs 15, 33, which says, The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor, just like pride comes before destruction. Now, the interesting thing about this verse is the word that's used for honor. Now, the word that's used for honor is actually the same word that's used everywhere in the Bible to describe the glory that God has. It's the same word. So, supreme honor, supreme glory goes to the humble. Now, even as I'm saying this, there there are some of you, I think, out there who are thinking, no, 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 that's not true. Humble people get stepped on. Humble people get overlooked. Humble people don't get supreme honor. Well, this is God's wisdom. This is the order that God has built into His world, into His world. And so, the truth of this verse, the truth of this wisdom, we see displayed most clearly, most ultimately, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see up there, Philippians 2, 6 to 11, which says, describing Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, here Paul describing how Jesus humbled himself, condescending himself down, 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 even to the point of dying on a cross. Verse 9 continues, Therefore, see, because he humbled himself, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. After humbling himself, what followed? What followed was supreme honor and glory given to Jesus. So you see, it's true. It is built into the very fabric of our world. Honor goes to those who are humble. That's the promise. And Jesus has demonstrated it by his supreme example. And he calls, he calls on his people to follow his example. But if all Jesus did was leave us an example, we would still be lost, we would still be pulling out our hair, we would be frustrated to death because we would be unable to follow his example. But you see, friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus does more than just give us an example. The work of Jesus actually accomplishes. It actually achieves something. For those who will accept his offer, for those who will trust in his work and entrust themselves to him, the work that Jesus accomplishes is the forgiveness of our sins. The work that Jesus accomplishes is to free us, free us from the penalty of our sins so that we are no longer under his judgment. The work of Jesus accomplishes that we are free as well from the power, not just the penalty, but also the power of our sins so that we are no longer his slave. See what Jesus himself says in John 8, verse 34. John 8. <clears throat> Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so the son has set us free by his cross work, by his rising again. We have been set free both from the penalty and the power of our sin. Friends, this is the promise of humility. God gives grace to the humble. And so let's move on to our third point, the pursuit. The pursuit of humility. And I phrased it this way because none of us ever arrive such that we can call ourselves, yes, from now on, I am a humble person. No, it is a constant pursuit, a daily pursuit. See friends, even though we've been freed from the penalty and the power of sin, it doesn't mean that we will never fail anymore. It doesn't mean that pride will never 
uh, raise his ugly head in our lives anymore. Because even though we've been freed from the penalty and the power of sin, for now, we still live with the presence of sin. For now, until Christ returns and transforms us totally, we will daily have to fight. But we fight pride with the knowledge that the day will come when even the presence of sin will be no more. That we will be freed completely from the penalty, the power, and even the presence of sin. Now what I want to do is to spend the rest of our time looking at some practical strategies that will help us to weaken pride and cultivate humility. So the first one is to daily reflect on the wonder of what Christ has done for us. John Stott writes, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. End quote. And so as we begin each day, as we progress through each day, we must make it a point to constantly visit that place called Calvary. To deal with that tendency to have that inflated view of ourselves, we must constantly visit that place called Calvary. <clears throat> the <clears throat> the second uh, practical strategy is related to the first. Together with reflecting on the gospel, begin each day. Uh, see, different from the proud person, the humble person will begin each day acknowledging our dependence on God. Right from the start of each day, we want to be intentionally resisting the sin of pride. Before we give it a chance to attack, we go on the offensive, that we begin each day acknowledging, God, I need you, I need your grace, I need your mercy. Right from the start, we want to acknowledge that we are not self-sufficient, that our every breath comes from God, that we are utterly dependent on Him. Right from the start, to begin each day with a posture of humility. So that's the second. The third practical suggestion follows naturally. And that is to begin each day expressing thankfulness to God. It's something that we must train ourselves to do. If not, uh, we will take for granted all the things that happen to us. 
Someone has said, thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. And it's true. But the reverse is true as well. You show me a person who is ungrateful, I will show you a person who is proud. We need to open our eyes to the countless ways that God is uh, blessing us, the countless ways that He is displaying and giving grace to us. And we need to recognize that, that whatever grace we receive is already more than we deserve. Because what we deserve is to suffer His judgment, suffer His wrath. So whatever grace we receive already is more than we deserve and we need to to cultivate in ourselves that posture of gratefulness and thankfulness to our gracious God. The next suggestion is directed to us as a community. On the back of uh, a church camp that looked at church matters. And uh, I think that reminded us, that that gave us a bigger vision of what church is. This this body, this people that he has gathered, uh, and we are accountable to each other, we, we have the responsibility to build each other up. This is what church is, and God has brought us together to do that for each other. On the back of that, one way to weaken pride and encourage humility is that we need to say to each other, both by, maybe by words as well as by attitude, we need to show each other that we are open. We are open to receiving feedback. We need to show, either affirm it to our uh, Bible study mates, affirm it to our pastors, affirm it to each other that, that I am I'm open. I want to receive your kind and loving correction. I give you permission to speak honestly to me. To speak the truth in love to me. We need to say that by attitude and by words to each other. We need to develop the humility of being open to receive criticism, constructive feedback. Now, the question is, how do we develop this humility? How do we get from where we are right now, which is you know, defensive and, you know, and, and all that. How do we get from this point to being open to receive feedback? Well, we need to understand, we need to recognize this truth uh, that Paul Tripp has described as, we need to recognize this truth that my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. Which means it is not at all. Because in those carnival mirrors, it's distorted. When I stand in front of a carnival mirror, it will make me look fat. Even though I'm absolutely not fat. But maybe you need to correct my self-perception. So, he says, my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, he writes, I need you to hold up the mirror of God's word in front of me. And friends, that's exactly what Hebrews 3, there was an scripture reading, says as well. So look up there with, uh, with me at Hebrews 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart 
that turns away from the living God. Now, how does that happen? How, how, how do we see that we don't have this sinful, unbelieving heart? Well, verse 13 says, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The way we see ourselves clearly, the way we see the deceitfulness of our own sin, is that we need one another to speak that word, to encourage, to rebuke, give correction, give feedback. And so if we acknowledge that this is true, that what God is saying here is true, that will help us posture ourselves humbly to to receive feedback. So go and say to your spouse, go and say to your parents, say to your Bible study group mates, Bible study leader, I give you permission to speak truth into my life. I want to assure you that I will do my best by the grace of God to humbly hear, humbly receive, humbly analyze what you have to say. And I will depend on your prayers to help me see the truth and make this correction. So that's four practical suggestions. But before I let you all go, I want to say that if there is only one, only one practical suggestion that you can take home with you, the only one that you can begin uh, working on, if there's only one, then let it be the first one. The first one where daily we reflect, daily we contemplate, daily we go to that place called Calvary. Now Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, There is only one thing I know that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me, humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I am a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humble to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility.